We are in 1 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I think in the seats in the Bibles, it's in the 850s, 860s. Now, today's passage, we've been working through the the letter of 1 Corinthians, and so we've been in, in it for some time now, but... Uh, and the passage today is not on parenting, but I thought it might be a helpful place to start because the concept does surface at, at least at, uh, at one level or another. So let's think about parenting a little bit. Uh, let's start with the animal kingdom, how animals parent, because un- despite finding Nemo, it doesn't quite work that way. Most animals... It's quite abrupt when you when you observe the animal kingdom how quickly most animals do away with their young, you know, kick them out. Um, turtles lay the eggs and leave them. And if you ever watch documentaries, it's like those eggs just for those little hatchings to get to the water from the beach is a major ordeal, you know. And then they have to figure out when they're the size of a sand dollar uh, how to how to be a turtle all by themselves. Now, other animals care better for their, you know, their young, but still, you can see, you can drive around, uh, you know, the back roads in our area, and you can see a deer and her fawn together one day, and the next day, they're apart. I mean, so quickly, they get, they get sent away. Birds in a nest. We have a lot of barn swallows uh, at our house, eventually their parents kick them out of the nest. You go from never having flown, never having even received a lesson, to hopefully flying. I mean, the goal is go away and don't come back. Um, And for us, there's a cat waiting, like right under the nest. There is a goal in parenting, is what I'm trying to say. In the animal kingdom, is we're not like them. We have better, higher goals, but we see that there are there's an objective in in parenting. And and with in our day and age, we have different sorts of objectives. You have you have those households that adopt. Um, the well-being of the child, the safety of the child is the primary objective, that this child will not endure any harm. And that child never gets kicked out of the nest, right? Because danger implies harm. So it could be an overly protective home. You have the home of opportunity, right? If... if uh, households that think that the way to raise the child is to give them every opportunity imaginable. If they want it, that's the mark of a good parent, is an opportunity giver. I reject this form of parenting on the face of it because I do not believe that God has made parenting an issue of the pocketbook. That uh, only those who can afford opportunities can parent well. I just, I reject that. There are those, and by the way, I'm a little bit of one of these just about every day, right? Uh, there are those who 
the goal of parenting is to get them out. (laughs) You're out and you're not coming back. My work is done. To create a young man or woman who can survive in the wild is a job well done with no real sense of who they will ultimately become. But what are the basic sorts of threats and variables of the jungle? Let me make sure they're trained for that. They'll figure out what they're going to be or their purpose in life. That's their own thing. But getting them out is the goal. To what end are we raised? I would say that in the kingdom of God, the purpose of parenting is to raise up a child who will respond to God, his or her father, as Lord, who will look to him for guidance and will pursue him all the days of his life. That's, I think, I think the highest form of parenting on earth is. Well, like I said, this is, not a, this is certainly not a parenting talk, um, but it's sort of weave in and out. <clears throat> this is a talk that Paul is going, is, he's writing this letter to his, the church. He views himself as the father of the church. He'll say that later in this chapter. He's their father. And so in that sense, this is a little bit of parenting going on. And we can try to examine like what kind of church is Paul trying to raise them to be? And we've been walking through a, a problem for this past several weeks, so I'll just be brief in summarizing it. The church of Corinth has a lot of problems. And one of the problems that has surfaced thus far is that they have attained a sense of dignified privilege and an air of maturity based upon things that don't really matter. Like, who is their teacher? Who is their preacher? What apostle came to visit them? That somehow matters to them an awful lot. What, what new teaching has come into the room? The, you can imagine almost, uh, sometimes I imagine almost an intellectual elitism as being some part of the problem here. And Paul is dealing with that, and, and today is the conclusion of that, sort of that problem. So allow me to read, I'm going to read uh, probably the first five verses. And we're going to have, uh, there's about three times during this message that we're going to pause and ask some questions about, uh, just to think about how are we, um, if we're a child of God, how are we pursuing his goal of maturity? So this is what Paul's going to say in in chapter 4. When he says that this is how you should regard us, he's speaking of us as the teachers who have worked to raise you up. Okay, chapter 4. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. 
Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. It's a fairly logical argument. He's saying in all the ways, incorrect ways that they've decided to view their teachers, he says, let me tell you how you should view us. You should view us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We're not high-faluting, not your lords, not your masters. We're servants of Jesus Christ, mysteries or stewards of the mysteries of God. In other words, the obligation that Paul has is not to the fellowship. He is not a servant of the church. He's a servant of Christ. He answers to God. And that's what he goes on to say. He says, because I'm a servant of Christ, and because I'm a steward of the mysteries of God, I don't really care what the church has to say about me. I don't really care what you, Corinth, think about me. You're not my judge. He says, in fact, I'm not my judge. Not because I've done anything wrong. He goes, actually, I can't think of anything that I've done wrong. But that does not in effect acquit me because there's things I don't know about myself for which I might be guilty. God's my judge because only God can look in and see all of the things that for me are even still now hidden. One, one day God will illuminate those things. But until then, why would I presume to judge myself and why would I presume to allow the church to judge me? Paul is saying, God is my judge. Now, I want to... I just want to slow down a little bit about this and think about, think about this maybe with ourselves in mind. <clears throat> One day... God will come and he will expose in us the mysteries that are hidden. What the scriptures call the purposes of the heart, our motives. Motives are, as I get older, I find, I find the Holy Spirit dealing more now with my motives than ever. I think I used to live more in, that was a good act, and I feel like now the spirit, the spirit shows me a little bit more. Yeah, but why did you do it? Because they're not your judge. I'm your judge. Like, it doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter what the outside world that only has the ability to see the act thinks. It's the inside world that matters. And Paul does something here that goes a little farther than we do in our world. In our world, we have, I think it's become a common notion that people are not supposed to judge one another. We, in America, we're all about that now. Who made you the boss of me? Don't judge me. Don't tell me what to do. That's fine for you, but don't put that on me. That's sort of the vibe of our present culture and in that vibe is this one big ethic, which is what really matters is to be true to yourself, right? What really matters is that being, I'm being true to my conscience. That is maybe one of the last true virtues that's standing in our culture, is be true to yourself. Well, Paul says, actually, that's not that reliable. True to yourself? <laughs> that doesn't acquit me, because there's things about myself I don't know. 
He's keeping the door open. In the way he talks, he's keeping room for, despite how, how hard, despite the fact that I might scrutinize my own behavior, I must entertain the notion that there are things about myself that I cannot see that God wants to show me. And so I'm humble in the notion. I'm humble in the notion that just because I have a clearer conscience about this, I must still keep room for God to speak. Just very practically, let me ask you. Are you prone to stop at your conscience? Like if you got a clean conscience about it, is that when you stop asking questions? I don't need to know what the Bible says. I have a clean conscience. You know, don't put that on me. Are you the final arbiter of your life? Practically. If you say to yourself, well, I listen to all the counsel that comes to me that's wise. Just want you to tell you, you, you didn't say much there. Right? You're still saying, if I like it, I'll listen to it. Maybe a better way to say this is, can you think of a person in your life that if they sit down and challenge you, if they really press hard on you, it matters to you? Like, is there that room to say, despite the fact that I might have a clean conscience about it, if that person said, I don't get it. I don't get how you can do that. You might initially kind of, you know, do your huffing and your puffing. Get in the car. You might ask, tell your friend, how, how in the, who in the world do they think they are? But doesn't, if you just know, like a day or two later, sitting in bed, laying in bed, you're going to be rolling over those person's comments because they, you know they are on your side. And you know that there's wisdom. Who, who is that for you? I mean, this is sort of a practical way of thinking about this. Paul is saying, God, I am always thoughtful that God sees more of me than I do. I'm always thoughtful about it. So I don't even try to judge myself. I'm constantly placing myself open to the Spirit because ultimately the Spirit is going to come and judge. Okay, let's read 6 and 7 here. This is a bit of a challenging passage. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and to Paulus for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if and then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Okay, what makes this a little difficult is, uh, well, one, it's difficult passage to translate. And even if it's correctly translated here in the Bible... We don't know what some of this means. This little passage that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, I'll be honest with you, the church does not know what is meant by that. So you could get 10 commentaries and on this passage, 10 good scholars on this passage, and the best scholars will say there's probably 
five views, but we're really not quite sure. We, it might be a colloquial phrase. If you have an NIV, if you're reading from an NIV Bible, that's how they use it. They see like something like don't go beyond the saying or the saying, they recognize it as a saying because we, we simply don't know what it means. So there's this, this idea sort of in six and seven that we're not quite sure of, but there's context on either side that we can do a lot with. And the context that's leaning into this is a church that is showing itself to be immature by the pre- fact that it's living under a pretense of being very mature, even though it's not doing simple things in the Lord, like love one another. There's an absence of love in the fellowship. There's quarreling, divisiveness, and strife. Those words have already been used. So it's a fellowship that's not doing the basic things for one another, but it's acting as though it's advanced. It's acting as though it's privileged. It's acting as though it's gifted. I mean, this whole letter, if you just read 1 Corinthians, you're going to feel like these people think they have arrived. And so Paul's putting out to them, listen, what do you, why do you think you're different than everybody else? What makes you so special? To which you might imagine them saying, well, (laughs) uh, we, um, we have the gifts of the Spirit. Because they did. It was clear that the, all of the gifts of the Spirit had made themselves present in the church in Corinth. So we have the gifts of the Spirit. To which Paul would say, yeah, but didn't God give those to you? <laughs> I mean, that's not you. That's God, right? They might say, well, you know, we have a lot of very accomplished individuals in the church. We have some very educated people in the church. And Paul would, but didn't, isn't that by the hand of God that you're blessed to have that? Well, we have, we have money. There's signs throughout the New Testament that Corinth had a lot of things that other churches didn't. So not too, too long before Paul arrived in Corinth, he was up at Thessalonica. Thessalonica appears by everything we can know as to have been a poor church. And when word got, when word came out that in Jerusalem there was a great famine and that the church in Jerusalem was struggling dearly for life, there was a collection made. And what's interesting is it appears as though the church in Corinth were the first ones to make a bold expression of generosity. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now this is me. I don't know if this is the text, but I almost, we, just the first ones to act like, well, that's, that's what we have. We will give. And what you find is there's a second letter to Corinth saying, remember you said you'd give? It would be really nice if you actually gave. Whereas to Thessalonica is, we know how broke you were, and so when we told you about the need in Jerusalem, we were shocked how much you gave. You gave beyond what we ever even implied. You stopped seeking us and you sought the will of God apart from us, and you ended up giving beyond beyond even what we think might have been possible. There's a difference in these churches. 
Corinth is wealthy in everything, and they think it's theirs. So Paul's saying, help me out here. You think the things you have are naturally yours because God gave them to you. Right there, you have to see them as from God. I'll give you an example, a parenting example since we're in the, in the land of parenting. You can imagine in our world, right? And I'm gonna exaggerate it just so that I, it doesn't hurt so bad, but the little Tommy starts playing soccer. He's, he's soccer Tommy, right? Yeah, travel league. Tommy was born in a hotel room on the way to his first soccer tournament, okay? And he came out with shin guards on, right? And year after year, Tommy played soccer, just soccer, 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 soccer. You know, he, at six years old, he could do the backflip thing. He learned how to flop at eight. You know, it's just no, you know, all the things. You know, he has trophies, all, so many trophies now, he didn't even care about trophies. Just, he knows soccer so deep. It's so in him. Why? Because his parents have poured out tremendous amounts of money, like cars worth of money, tuitions worth of money to make this possible. And they have driven Tommy all over the eastern seaboard. By the time he's 12, he's seen every state from Maine to Florida. And the coaches, they've, he's had the best coaches that money can buy, and they have invested in Tommy. And then Tommy gets stuck playing on his H.B. DuPont middle school soccer team with regular kids who have never played soccer before. And they just need to know, like, which goal do I kick it in? And you can't touch it, right? I mean, they're in that land, right? Now, there are, you can imagine two different types of Tommy in the middle of the game, right? Middle of the game, he's out there, he's thinking like Pele, and all around him is the Keystone Coppers, just tripping over themselves, you know, not knowing what, there's two types of Tommy right now. There could be a Tommy who actually realizes and remembers all that has been given to him in exactly the fashion he should know that I really am not this good except for the fact that my parents devoted their life towards this and towards me. They drove me around the country. Coach, one coach after another has poured into me that I've put time and time and time again. I'm really not any different than that kid who can't kick the ball except for what has been given to me. Or he could be the other Tommy, which we've all seen, right? The one who sits in the field and is angry at his players. Why aren't you like me? You see, the source of the gift has become, has produced the fruit of quarreling and division and strife. There is no love because there is no true consciousness about what has happened. He cannot see the marvelous gift he has received. Therefore, he cannot give what must and should be given.
That's what's happening here. This is a church that is entitled and gifted and blessed and esteemed and privileged and on heirs and to be honored and great and all of these things. And Paul is saying, help me understand. God gives you these things and then these things become the source of your own arrogant pride rather than using them for the kingdom? How are you any different from anyone else? And I'll ask you that. Just think about the things that you've been given. You know, if you grew up in a functional household, you are not, we are not allowed to assume. That's just how it is. You have been given much if you had a mother and father who displayed functional love in your midst. If that happened for you, you are blessed. You received it for a purpose. Right? If you grew up in an environment where you had parents who said, no, you gotta do your homework, you gotta do this. If, if the simple sorts of things that are functionality, you, we must open our eyes to the giftedness of those things. What do you have that, do you see the things that you have as yours or as having been given to you? You know, man, well, you're, but, but you're like, but genetically, I am a brilliant. Well, thank your parents. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't end. You can't ever get credit for it. What do we have? Think of the things in your identity that sort of you latch onto as that's why I matter, that's why I'm proud. Like, follow that rabbit trail back into your soul, find the things that make you matter, and then begin to ask the divine question, why did God allow this into my life? Because he wants to use it somehow for his glory. You are not his chief end. You are a means to the glory of God. This is a church that is imploding on itself through its own vain glory. And Paul's trying to call it out. Look at what God's given you. Jesus Christ died for you. He gave you life. He forgave your sins. The Spirit has come in you for a purpose. He's trying to shake them awake. And this is what happens, right? The shaking is about to happen. Verse 8. You may sound like I'm reading it in a cynical way, but it's a cynical, it's a cynical text. So I'm just trying to be the part. Paul says, already you have what you want. All you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. 
We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, like the refuse of all things. You hear it? The irony is scathing that one of the chief motivations for their arrogance is the importance of their teachers when, in fact, their teachers are selling their lives out for the Lord in disrepute and in dishonor so that the name of Jesus Christ might be made known by other people. Yet there's, they're boasting about it. It's, it's religiously perverse. It's almost as grotesque as a church. Well, imagine if Mother Teresa came to our church and shared her story and left. What if we became proud <laughs> because of Mother Teresa's visit? Entirely ignorant of her witness. What if we, in our, in our building program, instead of doing what we're going to do, we put a huge stained glass window of Mother Teresa and said, we spent $600,000 on this stained glass window of Mother Teresa that boasts of her work for the poor. What? You've missed the point. Paul's saying, we came so that we came with a message of Jesus so that you might have life. And life came in and we saw it. We saw life come into this church. We saw the Holy Spirit at work in the church. We saw you grab on like, like infants to milk. We saw you receive it and approve of it. We saw the salvations and the power of God present. But something has happened where you've taken what God has given through you for others and you've made it your own. And it defies our own witness as apostles as we, the very people you argue about, are slaving away for the kingdom. I am so thankful for verse 14 because that passage is so hard that I am so grateful that Paul follows it up with, I didn't write these things to make you ashamed but to admonish you. Because you read a passage like that, and if you're anything like me, you're like, ooh, am I supposed to sell everything? Am I supposed to, do I need to, do I need to quit that? Do I need, what, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And you, whew, thank you for 14. Like Paul's saying, listen, I'm not throwing all of this in your face just to make you feel like a loser. I'm trying to shake, awake your conscience so that you, you don't mishandle the things of God. You don't, God called me to be me and God called you to be you. I just don't want you to miss what you've received. He's saying, like a father, I'm just trying to wake you up. And in that, I'll ask these questions. Just Here's some ways to think about this. How is the kingdom of God costing you something? How is it costing you? I don't, we don't operate as children of God. We don't operate at a net loss. We operate at a massive gargantuan net gain. But in this life now, in this life now, 
We should identify some net loss. Let me show you. This is the ministry of Christ. This is Sermon on the Mount. Listen to how he talks. The same theme. He says this. He's talking to people and he says in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Do you see it? You see it? They're taking something God has intended for, and they've repurposed it for their own good. They've repurposed it for gain in the now. A little later he says, and when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Once again, God is, they've taken something God has intended to direct our lives towards him, and they have used it to advance their apparent position to the eyes of men. And he says, you owning it now ruins it for later. You owning it temporally ruins its eternal purpose. You're strangling it. And he follows this with, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy nor does the thief come in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What have you given up to follow Christ? Your lifestyle. How has your lifestyle changed in following Christ? The things you watched with your eyes, do your eyes look at things differently since you've started following Christ? Does your finger click the mouse button at different sites since you followed Christ? Do your ears listen to different music? Does your mouth say different words? Do you forfeit through the power of the Spirit all sorts of words that used to give you power and comfort? Are there dreams you've given up or shifted because of Christ? Are there opportunities? Are there places, and I hope you're encouraged in some way. I hope this is encouragement to some and conviction to others. Are there places where you have been long-suffering solely on account of the fact that you are a child of the living God? That God has given to you the ability to be long-suffering, so you're long-suffering. God told you the, a fruit of his spirit is patience, so you give patience. We cannot just add the value of the kingdom to the American dream. That addition does not happen. It is not the American dream plus Jesus makes a really good American dream. It's the wealth of the kingdom of God is greater than the American dream. It's worth selling it out so I can have this. How is your life different? He ends like a father does. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For although you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
This is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? You know, maybe we'll end where we began with this idea of parenting. This is Paul fathering the church the way a church ought to be fathered. His concern is, why is he fathering well? Because he's not, he's not their servant, and he doesn't worry about their judgment. He's fathering well because he is a servant of Christ and a, a steward of the mysteries of God. And in that, he can tell them what they need to hear. He can say, you're not living right. He's essentially saying to dad, don't make me come down there. <laughs> That's what he's doing. You better not make me come down there. Here's a question for us. <clears throat> How are you being raised in the Lord? You know, if you think about parenting, some, some people raise a child to be safe and kill them that way. Some people raise a child for opportunities and kill them that way. Some people raise a child just to get out of the house and survive, and they might kill them that way. Some raise a child to acknowledge God as a good father and to serve him all the days of their life. How are you growing towards God? Let's pray. Lord, it is impossible for us to even sit beneath these words without, we, without scrutinizing ourselves and seeing things about us that are not things about us that we wish were different. And so we can but trust that your spirit is at work in us. I do lift up though, Lord, those here who don't know what to think about God, don't know, don't know how to believe or what to believe, Lord. But I do pray that they would not be drawn to false religion. They would know that you want them to be different and that you've come to save them. Lord, may we see the things you've given us as gifts, and in seeing them that way, that we would become stewards, not owners. For we await the day that you will come to judge all things right, to include the motives of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.